Good morning. I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 25. For those of you who were here last week, the verse count associated with today's sermon is profoundly less than last week's, from 92 verses to 11. Uh, So, we're walking through the book of Genesis, and we're walking through it in four stages. Uh, we, we, We started in the first six months of 2022. And we walked from Genesis 1-1 to chapter 11, verse 9, from the dawn of creation to the dispersion at Babel. And then we took a two-month break, and then we returned to the second, uh, the second stage in the fall, in, in September, uh, picking things up at Genesis 11:10, um, with uh, Shem's descendants all the way down through Abraham and that, that's been the focus these last six months, uh, the life and the significance of Abraham bringing us down through chapter 25, verse 11, and the text this morning uh, concludes our journey through the second stage, and uh, then we'll, we'll take a two-month break, and then, Lord willing, on June 4th, we'll pick up with the third stage of our journey through Genesis. In this, per- in this particular sermon, I want to do two things. First of all, I want to briefly unpack Genesis chapter 25, verses 1 through 11. And then after that, I want to reflect on the legacy of Abraham and Sarah. So, let me read uh, Genesis chapter 25, beginning in verse 1. Holy Scripture says, Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah, She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Asherim, Letushim, and Laumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanak, Abida, and Eldaah. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beir Lahai Roy. This is God's word, and it is for our good. Let's pray. Father, uh, we again uh, thank you for your holy word. We pray that your words would dwell richly in our hearts, transform our lives, anchor us in the unchanging truth of your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, So Genesis 25, 
1 through 11 unfolds in four parts. First, we learn about Abraham's descendants through Keturah. Chapter 23 told us that Sarah died. And then chapter 24 told us that Isaac took Rebekah and she became his wife. Genesis 24, 67. And now chapter 25 begins by telling us that Abraham took another wife, Keturah. They had six sons, and these six sons probably generated numerous descendants, although verses 3 and 4 only tell us about the line of descendants that began through Jokshan, the second son, and Midian, the fourth son. Jokshan had two sons, Sheba and Dedan, grandsons of Abraham and Keturah. And through Dedan came about three people groups, the Asherim or Asherites, the Letushim or Letushites, and the Leumim or Leumites. Midian had five sons, and these also were grandsons of Abraham and Keturah. Although the statement that Keturah bore him six sons makes it clear that these are Abraham's sons, nevertheless, the text emphasizes in verse 4 that they are the children of Keturah. And this is just another reminder that the son of promise came only through Abraham and Sarah. Of all the sons, grandsons, and people groups mentioned in verses 2 to 4, the most significant in terms of biblical history is Midian. In due course, Moses will flee to Midian and live there for a long time and will marry the daughter of a Midianite priest. Later, the Lord will give Israel into the hand of the Midianites because of their sin. And then afterward, he will raise up Gideon to give Israel the victory over the Midianites. All these happenings are, in a very real sense, extended family conflicts. Of course, as all human beings are descended from Adam and also from Noah, in reality, all the conflicts in our world are extended family conflicts. Although the Lord's promises to Abraham are primarily focused on the covenant promises extended through Isaac, we should remember that one of the Lord's promises to Abraham was that Abraham would be the father of a multitude of nations. That's in Genesis 17, verse 4. And so in terms of physical lineage, Abraham is not only the forefather of Israel, stemming from Isaac's younger son Jacob, but he's also the forefather of the Ishmaelites, the Asherites, the Letushites, the Laomites, the Midianites, the Edomites, stemming from Isaac's older son Esau, and whatever other nations stemmed from Keturah's other sons. Abraham is indeed the father of many nations, many people groups. Second, going to verses 5 and 6, we learn about Abraham's estate plan with respect to leaving his inheritance to the next generation. And the bottom line is that Abraham put all of his eggs into one basket and gave the basket to Isaac. Remember, Abraham had eight sons total, Ishmael by Hagar, Isaac by Sarah, and then he had the six sons of verse 2 by Keturah. But only Isaac was the son of promise and the heir of the covenant promises. Therefore, verse 5, Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. This doesn't mean that Abraham didn't care about his other sons, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts, verse 6, 
In so doing, Abraham diminished his estate by whatever amount of the gifts that he gave to his other sons. But once that action was taken, what remained of the vast estate that he had was given entirely to Isaac. And this goes right along with what Abraham's servant had, had said many years earlier when he was talking to Rebekah's family about his master Abraham. In chapter 24, verses 35 to 36, Abraham's servant had told Rebekah's family, the Lord has greatly blessed my master, and he has become great. He has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys, and Sarah, my master's wife, for a son to my master when she was old, and to him he has given all that he has. Further, while Abraham was still living, he sent his other sons away to the east, and this action would have reinforced the idea that Isaac was the sole heir of Abraham's estate and the sole heir of the covenant promises. Notice that the other sons are identified as sons of his concubines. And this once again serves to highlight the uniqueness of Isaac. Isaac, the son of Abraham, and Abraham's proper wife, Sarah, is not like the other sons who were sons of Abraham's concubines. The use of the terms of the term concubine is really interesting and instructive. The phrase refers to Keterah, chapter 25, and also to Hagar, chapter 16. Although Keterah is referred to as a wife, in Genesis 25, verse 1, and Hagar is also referred to as a wife in Genesis 16, 3. Nevertheless, they did not have the same standing that Sarah had as Abraham's true wife. In fact, Keterah is specifically called Abraham's concubine in 1 Chronicles chapter 1, verse 32 which is heavy on genealogical information. But as Genesis 25.10 tells us, Sarah was his wife. The emphasis on, on Isaac's unique status as sole heir is a fitting conclusion to Abraham's biographical record, which was from the very beginning so focused on his offspring, that which God would do in the future. So with that uh, biographical information now complete, what remains is a brief notice concerning Abraham's death and burial. One hundred years earlier, at the age of 75, he had left Haran and traveled to Canaan. He fathered Isaac at the age of 100. His wife Sarah died when he was 137. His son Isaac married when he was 140. His grandsons Jacob and Esau were born when he was 160. Although the, the births of Jacob and Esau are not recounted until later in chapter 25, those births actually took place several years before Abraham's death. And now, at the age of 175, his days were complete. Verse 8 employs formal language in order to tell us that a man who had lived a long and productive life had finally died. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. The phrase gathered to his people is used several times in the Old Testament as a way of describing a man's passage 
through death into the mysterious realm of after death. It is used of Abraham, of Ishmael, of Isaac, of Jacob, of Aaron, and of Moses. They died and were gathered to their people. While the phrase by itself doesn't tell us much about what happens to people after death, it is a gentle witness to what becomes clear later in Scripture that physical death is not the end of a person's existence. While the bodies of the deceased are laid to rest in the earth, the souls of the righteous are immediately ushered into a place of comfort. And the souls of the wicked are immediately ushered into a place of torment. The souls of both the righteous and the wicked await the day of physical resurrection when every human being will stand before the righteous judge and will be judged according to the character and conduct of his life. And some will be welcomed into eternal blessedness and others will be sent away into eternal punishment. Scripture says, An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear the Son of Man's voice and come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. John 5, verses 28 and 29. And by way of application, it's worth saying that one day you also will be gathered to your people. Therefore, be diligent to make sure that your people are the people who live under God's promise, not the people who perish under God's judgment. After Abraham's death, his two oldest sons teamed up to bury their father, although Ishmael was the oldest, not insignificantly. Isaac is mentioned first. In verse 9, Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him. Where? In the place that we learned about last week, that field that Abraham bought in chapter 23 from the Hittites. Isaac and Ishmael had his, his sons buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. Finally, after all that, we are told that after Abraham's death, God blessed Isaac, his son. Verse 11. We have been prepared for this moment all along. Isaac, the son of Abraham, is the one who will carry forward the covenant promises of God into the next generation under the blessing of God. And after all this, Isaac settled at Beer Lahai Roy. Do you remember where we learned about that place? It was the very place where Hagar had realized that the Lord saw her and cared for her. Back in chapter 16, verses 13 and 14, it says that Hagar called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing, for she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me, therefore the well was called Beer Lahai Roy, it lies between Kadesh and Barrett. Beer Lahai Roy means the well of the living one who sees me. And so in terms of Isaac's physical location, he lived in a place that was named for the living God who sees and cares. And in terms of his spiritual location, Isaac lived under the care, the care of God who did, in, did indeed see him and bless him after his father's death. With over 13 chapters of the book of Genesis focused on Abraham, Abraham is of critical importance 
to the unfolding biblical storyline. Those who come onto the scene after Abraham must look back to Abraham. God's call upon and covenant with Abraham function as an anchor, a firm foundation upon which to stand and build, a basis for hope and a pattern for our own walk with God. We live in a society that loves to break from the past and to break, to break from the traditions that have been handed down to us. Now, I'm all for breaking from the sinful past and from empty traditions, but when it comes to the rich heritage that God has gifted to us through His people and that God has preserved for us in the Scriptures, I don't want to break from it. I want to stand in it, savor it, celebrate it, and stick to it. Simply put, we must learn to look back with gratitude to our forebears and to the trail that they blazed under the blessing of God. Since those who, since those who believe in Jesus are sons of Abraham, Galatians 3.7, then we must remember that we stand in the promises that God made to Abraham. God's promises to Abraham are a covenant foundation to which we must continually return. When the afflicted children of Israel cried out in Exodus chapter 2, we are told that God heard their groaning and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Exodus 2.24. When the prophet Micah ends his book with a beautiful description of God's steadfast love, compassion, and forgiveness, he concludes with this prayer to the Lord. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Micah 7.20. When we turn to the pages of the New Testament, what do we find? After Mary had been told by the angel that she would give birth to the Son of God, she praises the Lord and celebrates the mercy of God. And she concludes her praise song by saying, He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to His offspring forever. Luke 1, verses 54 and 55. Likewise, after John the Baptist was born, John's father Zechariah blessed the Lord for raising up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. Luke 1 verses 69 to 73. The promises that Abraham received, as well as the faith that he had and the obedience that he rendered, are foundational to understanding what it means to walk in covenant fellowship with a gracious God. Regarding the inclusion of the Gentiles in God's gracious covenant, Jesus said, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 8, verse 11. Gentiles who believe in the Messiah stand on the shoulders of the Hebrew patriarchs.
and at the appointed time we will feast with them at the table of the Lord in the eternal kingdom of peace. It is profoundly right for Christian believers to sing to one another, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Profound theology there to that kid's song. We must also give Sarah her due when the Apostle Peter encourages women to adorn themselves with true beauty, that is, with the imperishable, imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious, 1 Peter 3, 4, Peter's uh, uh, thoughts turned to Sarah. He immediately went on to say, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. 1 Peter 3, verses 5 and 6. If you want to dance with the spirit of the age, then you will no doubt look elsewhere for inspiration. But if you want to display that which is very precious in the sight of the God who sees you, then know and understand that God has given Sarah to you as a pattern to follow. We must look back. But we must not only look back, we must also, with Abraham and Sarah, learn to look forward. And so I want you to learn one final and I think very important lesson from Abraham and Sarah. This is a lesson that is rightly considered when we consider their deaths. Let me connect Genesis 23.2 and 25.8 to a New Testament passage and then talk about it. Genesis 23.2 begins, and Sarah died. Genesis 25.8 begins, Abraham breathed his last and died. Hebrews 11.13 says, these, including Abraham and Sarah, these died in faith, not having received the things promised. Hebrews 11.13. Abraham and Sarah died. They died as they lived in faith, trusting God in His promises, and yet at the time of death, they had not yet received the things promised to them. Earlier, I indicated that our society often fails to look back with gratitude and receive the rich heritage that God has stored up for us through the faithful men and women of the past, and that is true. But it is also true that people often fail to look forward to the future that God has promised to those who trust Him. Because they're so fixated, people are so fixated on the present moment, the present comfort, the present distress, the present relief, the present advantage, the present problem, the present pleasure. Instead of living in view of an unfolding future that rolls into eternity, people live in the deceptive illusions of the here and now. And this is why they lay up treasure on earth where banks fail and wars break out and dreams are shattered. And so to encourage us in the right direction, 
We need to see and understand that Abraham's life was profoundly future-oriented by God's design. Listen, God promised to do things for Abraham that would never happen in Abraham's lifetime. I will make of you a great nation, Genesis 12, 2. To your offspring I will give this land, Genesis 12, 7. All the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever, Genesis 13, 15. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted, Genesis 13, 16. And then in Genesis 15, Abraham learned that his descendants would not come into possession of the land of Canaan until at least after 400 years, since God promised that his offspring would be afflicted for 400 years in a foreign land before possessing the land of Canaan. That's in Genesis 15, verse 13. As for Abraham, he wouldn't be around at that time in the days of fulfillment, for God had told him in Genesis 15, 15, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And so it was. Because of both God's instruction as well as practical considerations, Abraham knew he would not be around when God's promises to him would be fulfilled. The last promises to Abraham that Scripture recounts included, I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Genesis 22, 17, and 18. Now, I, I really want you to think about this concretely. Consider these lavish promises. Great nation, innumerable descendants, possession of the land, and decisive global impact. And then consider what Abraham had when he died. In terms of the covenant, he had one son, Isaac, a daughter-in-law, Rebekah, and two grandsons, Jacob and Esau. And that's it. God also made lavish promises concerning Sarah. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her, Genesis 17, 16. Now consider what Sarah had when she died. She had Isaac, as yet unmarried, and that's it. And that doesn't look like much to fleshly eyes. However, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were, that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Hebrews eleven thirteen. Do you remember what Abraham said to the Hittites in chapter 23? I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Genesis 23, verse 4. The upshot of all this is that Abraham and Sarah both had to trust the Lord to keep his promises to them by fulfilling those promises in and through their offspring after they were dead. They trusted, they trusted the Lord to keep his promises to them by fulfilling those promises to their offspring long after they had exited the earthly scene. And my question is, do you have the capacity to follow in their footsteps?
God, God, God's promises give us an orientation to the future, and His commands tell us how to build into the future that He has promised. Remember what the Lord said, to, said about Abraham in Genesis 18, 19, I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. And later the Lord told Abraham that he would indeed fulfill his promises to Abraham because Abraham had obeyed the voice of the Lord, Genesis 22:18. God doesn't give promises so that we'll sit down and indulge in pious non-activity. Oh, I'm just trusting God. Instead, God gives us promises to anchor our hearts and then to orient us to the direction in which we must walk, in which we must travel. God's commandments are always the pathway to the promised land, and our obedience builds into the future that God promises. Now, I acknowledge that Abraham had received very specific promises and that we do not find ourselves in the exact same situation. But Abraham's situation remains instructive for us as we go about the task of building for the future that God has promised. Although there are times when God graciously allows us to see a measure of good fruit in the short term, Oftentimes, we must simply trust the Lord to bring about the desired and promised fruit in His own good time, perhaps many years from now, perhaps many decades from now, perhaps long after you're dead. Think about the Lord's promise to multiply Abraham's offspring as the stars of heaven. I mean, how long would that take? When the events of Genesis 22 took place, Abraham might have been around 115 years old. When he was 160, his two grandsons were born. Many years later, this is, this is many years after Abraham had died, uh, all the descendants of Jacob were 70, just 70 people down in Egypt. And only then are we told that the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Exodus 1.7. Abraham knew that he would not be alive at the time when the promises were fulfilled, but he lived by faith and he died in faith. Will you? Are you willing to lay a foundation for, make an investment in, and leave a legacy to future generations? Some of our fellow Christians started South Paris Baptist Church in 1885. As far as I know, for 138 years, this local church has stood in the truth of the Scriptures and proclaimed the message of salvation in the Oxford Hills. Decisions that they made then affect us now. We benefit from their groundwork. We stand on their shoulders. The decision that this church made several years ago to switch from a deacon board to an elder board established a healthy leadership trajectory that we've been building on over the last five years. The decision that this church made several years ago to codify its commitment to biblical sexuality was not a momentary burst of noisemaking, but it was putting down a here-we-stand stake in the ground with implications for all future churchgoers. 
in all of this from the founding of this local church and every subsequent decision to reaffirm biblical truth and to resist the spirit of the age by which so many churches and denominations have gone off the rails. In all of this, they blazed a trail for us and we now are blazing a trail for those who will come after us. With Abraham as our example, we must have a contentment in the Lord that allows us to pursue faithfulness even though we may not be around for the bumper crop. Of course, Abraham knew that his descendants' future possession of the land of Canaan was not actually the ultimate reference point of God's promise anyway. That passage in Hebrews chapter 11 says more. It says this. Hebrews 11, verses 13 to 16. These, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. They had their eyes on a heavenly country. Their heart was oriented to the city designed and built by God. And so, in, the, in an ultimate sense, the bumper crop, the super abundant harvest, will not be manifest until the new heaven and the new earth. In this sense, the things promised are always future, no matter what time you're living in. Therefore, Hebrews chapter 13 tells first century Christians, and all Christians sense, it tells us to live with the same future orientation that Abraham and Sarah had. It says, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. We seek the same city they were seeking. Hebrews 13, verse 14. At the same time, though, just to make sure we got a complete picture here, some of God's promises to Abraham were partially realized when the children of Israel entered the promised land, when the Canaanite cities fell under, when they fell to Israel under the leadership of Joshua, when David was exalted as a great king in the Middle East, when the Queen of Sheba paid King Solomon a visit. Beyond that, there was the most profound fulfillment of God's promises when Jesus came. Jesus said to his disciples, blessed are your eyes, for they see. Blessed are your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Paul wrote that the end of the ages has come upon the church. 1 Corinthians 10, 11. Peter wrote that the Old Testament prophets who foretold the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories knew that they were not serving themselves, but you. They were serving you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. So even though we are still seeking the city that is to come, 
Nevertheless, we have experienced a greater measure of fulfillment than the saints and prophets of old had known. And now we know that all of God's promises have been sealed in the Lord's own blood by which He purchased and purified His bride forever. But even even with that big picture in view, and even though we can't replicate the, the same historical circumstances that Abraham and Sarah were in, I think we still need to ask this basic question. Are you content to pursue faithfulness to the Lord even though most of the fruit of your faithfulness will not be visible until well into the future? Are you willing to keep the path of obedience well trod and well marked and well posted for future generations of believers who will benefit from that long after you're dead? Will you have the outlook of Abraham and Sarah? Will you have the outlook of the Hebrew prophets? Will you have the outlook of Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley? In the year 1555, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley were burnt at the stake for their biblical convictions. A short article about Latimer and Ridley recounts this remarkable scene. Sharing an embrace before execution, Ridley said to Latimer, Be of good cheer, brother. For God will either assuage the fury of the flames or else strengthen us to abide it. To which Latimer responded, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day, by God's grace, light a candle in England as I trust in God shall never be put out. The willingness to light a candle through martyrdom, and true martyrdom simply means bearing faithful witness to the truth, through one's death for that truth, the willingness to light a candle through martyrdom is the ultimate example of devoting your life in service to future generations. Are you willing to light a candle which will influence generations of people long after you have died? Are you willing to die so that others may live? Isn't this the way of following Jesus? Brothers and sisters, one of the great temptations that the world, the flesh, and the devil throw at us is the temptation to be obviously successful and impactful in the narrow confines of the here and now. After all, media outlets typically don't run stories on on people whose lives will prove to bear fruit 100 years from now. That's too boring to generate many clicks. That's too boring to people who want exciting and inspiring news today. That's too boring to people who want more and better stuff now, who want marketable and tangible stuff now. But God is in the business of using ordinary people who, through simple obedience, become building blocks in a spiritual house that will last forever. Just imagine Abraham on his deathbed, perhaps attended by his 75-year-old son Isaac and his 15-year-old grandson Jacob. And then Abraham, just imagine Abraham thinking to himself that this little band in God's faithful hand was somehow going to grow big and influential and would be the key to reversing the curse and restoring the blessing to humankind. Abraham saw it from afar and he greeted it and he lived for it and he died in faith. Friends, Don't be duped by the superficial satisfaction of making a big splash in the here and now. 
Don't be addicted to the need for an immediate payoff. Don't require a certain amount of visible success to justify the choices that you've made. Don't assume that faithful ministry attracts crowds of fans. Instead, trust the Lord and do not lean on your own fleshly preference for outward impressiveness. Always live in view of eternity. Make choices that are in line with Scripture. Be content to walk in ordinary obedience as a faithful husband or wife, a faithful father or mother, a faithful grandfather or grandmother, a faithful member of the church, a faithful servant, employee, neighbor, friend. For God is pleased to work through His faithful ones to weave together a storyline that will impact generations to come and all of it will, will reverberate with great joy when all the children of Abraham and Sarah are feasting together in the banquet hall in the city of our God. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would wean us from the desires of the flesh, from the lust of the eyes, from the craving for worldly significance. I pray that we would fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and that we would follow in the footsteps of Father Abraham and Mother Sarah, your Holy Spirit would transform our lives and produce good fruit that would impact children and grandchildren and future generations of disciples. We pray that your light would shine through us now and down through the ages and will accomplish far more than we'll ever know until eternity reveals it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.